0: everyone I'm joined today by my friend from the UK called Dov Benyakov Kurtzman hi Dov how are you
1: hi Chrissy. how are you doing yeah I'm fine thanks
0: good so um it's lovely to see you and we've not seen each other in person for five years can you believe that
1: well actually I can't until you mentioned it, I didn't realize it was that long ago it's incredible actually
0: I know and so we met in London at SQR Group's offices and um, you were working on some projects in Manchester around um, mental health and well-being and a lot has changed for you in five years as has my life too so congratulations on your book by the way Mind Over Terror it looks awesome I'm looking forward to receiving a signed copy in Australia soon to share with my friends here but um, today and uh, as you know, I published a book in 2020. So we, we we had more things in common in 2017 or 2016 we met than we probably realized. <laughs> Did you no, know absolutely. in 2016 you would you had a book to, to come outside of you? <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I I I wouldn't have. Although I had the the ambition to write a book many years ago. Um, Certainly didn't think it was going to be the book that I wrote in the end. That was that's a complete, you know, uh, surprise to me. I would never have imagined it. Um, But yeah, who would have known we both have books by now?
0: I know it's same for me. My genre was chick literature, so humorous women's stories. And I've ended up writing a self-help health and well-being book. So I'm sure like you, it's the contrast content to what you imagined
1: absolutely Well, yeah completely uh, completely out of the blue I didn't I didn't expect it
0: so your credentials are massive and I'm not going to um, read them all out because I think your experience will come through for people as we're chatting today but essentially you've um, you're an expert in cognitive first aid post-traumatic stress um, and a number of other things around psychology and well-being so, Tell me a little bit about um, Cognitive First Aid, first and foremost, and and what it is.
1: Okay, so um, Cognitive Psychological First Aid is a protocol, basically. It's probably the only one in the world that is an actual protocol in helping somebody get out of psychological shock. Now, there's different types of psychological first aid in the world. Um, and the most uh, popular one is the uh, World Health Organization psych- standard psychological first aid. But they are basically recommendations of what they think should be done after a disaster of some sort, man-made or um, natural. Um, but there's no actual what to do. It's just recommendations of kind of make sure that they've got clothes, make sure that they're you know, comfortable and so on. Um, so... Cognitive psychological first aid is an actual protocol. When somebody is in psychological shock, which means that they are not um, functionable, um, their executive part of their brain has kind of, if you like, in colloquial language, gone offline. And their emotional part of the brain has hijacked the brain and kind of shut down that thinking side of the brain. When that happens, um, and I'll give you the two extremes, but there's lots of different uh, stages in between. One extreme is that the person just collapses on the ground, goes into like super freeze, and is just lying there. Um, The opposite extreme is, you know, again, to use colloquial language, is that they go into a hysterical um, rage, if you like. Now, the problem with both of these. states are that they are dangerous to themselves and others so as an example if there's a building that has to be evacuated immediately a fire a bomb or whatever it is an earthquake it doesn't make any difference um, and somebody goes into that freeze collapsed mode then they can't evacuate themselves quite simply and there's a big chance that they're going to get trampled on and even more importantly, if a, to somebody to save their life, they're actually going to have to stop in their tracks and kind of put them on their back or whatever, or an emergency worker is going to have to endanger their lives to go into the building and, and rescue them. That's on that side. On the other side, if somebody's running around hysterically without any conscious um, knowledge of their actions and they're in a car crash, then um, they might... Run on to the other side of the road. They might, you know, there's all sorts of things that they could do that would endanger themselves, maybe cause another accident. So when somebody's in psychological shock, what the standard um, intervention would be that once you catch up with uh, a person like that, you'd put them on a stretcher, stick them in an ambulance, and take them down that road of being a trauma patient and that continues until possibly there's a good chance that they're going to get some sort of post-trauma chronic situation later on because they've already been, if you like, treated as a patient from the first seconds. What we've discovered, though, is that in the first 48 to 72 hours, it's not a patholo- that's not a pathological um, situation. That's an acute stress reaction. It's a natural reaction of the human body and mind And if you know by using cognitive psychological first aid how to to trigger them out of that by re-triggering that thinking part of the brain, you can get them up and functioning within 90 seconds to two minutes. And so much so that if they were a professional that went into um, psychological shock, either a soldier or a farmer, a policeman, ambulance person, whatever it is, they could actually carry on functioning. They don't have to be Um, retrieved and taken down that patient route that's in a nutshell basically
0: it's very interesting because you obviously talk a little bit about the fact that there's no protocols so all you're doing is dealing with people's basic human needs you know keeping them warm and giving them a safe place to rest as opposed to you know what would be their actual higher human needs on from there so I was just visualizing you know Maslow's hierarchy we're dealing with people's basic human needs and we're ignoring everything else above that does that come into play with what you're describing?
1: Okay so that would be the general psychological first aid that's out there the difference where we have an actual protocol where you can uh, uh, arrive at the the human being Mm -hmm. and you do a series of um, steps or which are almost kind of Um, neurological triggers, if you like, to trigger that prefrontal cortex at the front of the brain, that executive part of the brain, by giving them different tasks, saying different things to them, um, uh, you know, asking them to do certain things, where uh, that re-triggers that thinking part of the brain and brings them back to a functioning human being. So there, here, we, we actually do have a very specific protocol that can be learned by anybody, that you don't have to be a therapist or anything like that. I basically call it CPR for the brain. So whereas we expect you know, anyone over 16, maybe even younger, to learn um, first aid, physical first aid, learn a little bit about CPR, how to revive somebody, then this is also in a similar light um, how you could re- um, revive somebody in a, in a functional basis. Um, by doing CPR for the brain.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm visualizing the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain and the, and the prefrontal cortex of the human brain. So basically we want to get them out of this fear, freeze, flight, and then back up into their functioning human brain. That's what you're describing. as. Yeah,
1: absolutely. What, what's happened is that, that only, only let's say, if you take the mammalian brain and the, and the human brain, the prefrontal cortex, only one of them can be, and this is very kind of rough terms, but only one of them can really be dominant at the one time, either it's that one or it's that one. So in a, in a fear death-like situation, the emotional brain is gonna take control and shut down, if you like, that human um, executive part of the brain. And all this protocol is doing all, but it's very important, is to reawaken this and bring that mammalian brain down under the control of the executive branch
0: that's really really fascinating and you obviously had a background in all of this before you know the uk terror attacks and covid-19 were a part of our lives so you know how has the past few years really shaped you as a person and you know personally as well as professionally with your skills
1: So well, it's an ongoing process from personal development as well, right? So you know about that, Christy. So the the the, you know I went through my my own personal, and I am still going through my own personal journey. Um, I didn't always have this is my second career, if you like. Um, It's probably more than my second, but my second career, um, my first major part of my working life was in um, security and policing and law enforcement and things like that. So there was a lot of pressure, high stress job, you know, 18 hour days for many, many years, things like that. And then I went through my own personal life um, traumas um, and decided that, well, first of all, I needed my own so my own help from psychologists. So getting back into civilian life, into the life that I wanted to live, I um, went and had my own uh, psychological treatment. and. I saw that it was so effective that I wanted to learn more about it. That was basically the, the idea. It wasn't to become a psychologist or anything like that. Um, and after years of studying, I realized that this something that I really would love to do is to help others basically benefit for the kind of benefits that I received. And so I studied clinical social work as well. And uh, it just kind of went on from there. So Over the last five years has been a kind of an ongoing um, journey for me and by um, helping others on the way, I've also managed to help myself and hopefully helped a few people on the way.
0: Mm. So what was it like for you being in Manchester as a Manchester resident during the time of that horrendous arena attack?
1: So that, that was quite incredible, actually, because um, I had come to Manchester because I knew people here. I, I, when I was, um, I'd learned a lot of this, this psychological and emergency stuff in Israel, and I wanted to come out of there and go abroad and teach this stuff because it was only really being taught in Israel. So I felt a bit like a pioneer, and I thought, well, you know, where will I go in the world? Well, I had friends, and, you know, coming to the UK because I'm you know, Scottish and I've got a British passport, so it's all easy. And so I picked Manchester really kind of at random, if you like, um, to come to come and live here, um, and started to teach this stuff from a commercial basis. That's where we met. So the idea was, you know, I was out to make some money and to teach people, and you know, went on that route. Um, And little did I know that within a few months I would be sitting in the a few kilometers basically from one of the most horrific terrorist attacks uh, that the British Isles have ever known. Um, suicide bomber, 22 young people died, pop concert. I mean, absolutely horrific. The whole city was in shock for months. Mm-hmm. It still is kind of scarred from that. Um, and I'm sitting a few kilometers down the road um, with some skills that uh, nobody had at that time. And, um, so the incoming, I I was, you know, kind of stunned myself because I thought, well, you know, what, how can I use this? What can I do? And I was teaching it from a professional basis to, um, a commercial basis, but here I was wanting to run and do something until I, you know, I got together with a friend and we went down and we got, we got into action and basically set up. Uh, a support center in the middle of Manchester within a week, trained over 70 people and uh, ran a full-time clinic. So, you know, that was, it was incredible, really. It was all almost miraculous, you could say, the certain things that went on. And that's what the book's about, is the backstory to all that, how things came together, a story of people helping people. And for me to have been a part of that was an absolute privilege, basically.
0: And you've been recognised by the royal family, and I, and so that was another funny thing that I realised that we had in common. I went to train staff at Buckingham Palace, and you've been recognised for your training by the royal family. So that's really, really cool.
1: Yes, I, I remember that you'd uh, you'd been doing training at Buckingham Palace, and and for me to you know to meet Prince William, and for me to be asked as an audience of his was uh, was very exciting. Actually, it was it was quite. Uh, It was quite emotional and uh, it was very nice, very nice to meet them. And uh, just to get, you know, I did it through my charity that I opened. It wasn't just me. There was lots and lots of people uh, involved and I was just kind of representing them. But it was definitely an honour.
0: Yes. So um, let's talk a little bit about the six-prong approach that you spoke of. um, And what are some of those key steps in that approach, if you could summarise them for us?
1: So, yeah, so basically what we're talking about is, um, we can look at it a couple of ways, but they're all cognitive type um, procedures. That's why it's called cognitive psychological first aid. And I use the acronym cortex, Mm -hmm. kind of, because that's what we're kind of doing. We're re-triggering the cortex. Mm -hmm. So the C in the cortex is the first thing we want to do is to, to make a connection with the person that we come into contact with. As a responder, I uh, come into connection with um, the person who's suffering from psychological shock. And that part is really important. And I need to have a sort of a communication system with them. And so I want to either just be able to talk to them or if they're unable to communicate with me at that point like that, then I want to do some sort of non-verbal communication with them and another thing that um, is really important is the o in the cortex which is my obligation to them that i'm going to be with them and they're going to feel safe in the in the knowledge that you know i'm not going to abandon them and that's really important because one of the things that happens to us when we're in psychological shock is we'll kind of have a disconnect from the world and we feel extremely lonely so when somebody comes up and makes that Um, obligation that I'm going to be with you until the end of whatever this is, Um, you don't need to worry, then they they get a sense of somebody's with them. The R in uh, cortex is helping them regain control. Because like I said, it's not a pathological um, uh, situation here. So whereas traditionally they're treated as being pathologically injured, whereas somebody would, you know, do things for them, put the blanket around them, bring them the water, or giving them the cup of tea, make them feel um, that, it, you know, it's a kind of a show of empathy, but basically what you're doing is basically telling them, you know, I'm in control and you're the patient. Um, what we do is we help them regain that sense of agency, regain that sense of control um, through giving them simple tasks to do rather than us doing it for them. And the T is that task. So the task is kind of giving them challenges. For example, whereas the the traditional kind of almost um, natural thing is that you'd want to come over and give somebody like that a drink of water. Well, what we would do is we would ask them to go and get themselves a drink of water and maybe even bring somebody else a drink of water so that we get that sense that they're, you know, have that sense of agency. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's really important in these kind of extreme situations is dealing with the chronology of um, how somebody is registering what's happening. And this is a big problem with post-stress traumatic disorder because um, one of the things that happens there is when there's a, a shock situation, The absorption of the chronology of events is sometimes a little bit mixed up. So present will be in the past, past will be in the future and so on. Um, Whereas, you know, if somebody asks somebody, well, what what actually happened? They'll say, well, um, an ambulance came, um, I set off from my house for a walk, uh, and, you know, then there was an explosion. Something wrong there. The chronology is not correct, right? Mm -hmm. But that is the way that their brain has absorbed it. Mm -hmm. And later on, um, the brain starts to try and go back, realizes that there's something wrong with that chronology, and starts to go back to refix it. The problem is after about six hours or so that's kind of almost set. Mm-hmm. So that's where we get a lot of flashbacks from and nightmares from for people with, with PTSD, is because our brain is kind of trying to go back there and sort out what's going on. So um, the E in our cortex protocol, is basically to establish that chronology, give a little seed to the brain by saying, you know, you've been in an explosion, you're with me now, which is now in the, so being in an explosion is past, you're with me now is the present, and in a few minutes we're going to go over to there and get yourself a drink, or we're going to go home, or whatever it is, a little bit in the future. So the brain now gets back into that situation of something in the past, something in the present, something in the future, and begins to recalculate. Um, what's going on um, on that live situation while it's still um, plastic, if you like. And the X, well, the cortex, we've got to play a little bit about it. So it's exchange. So it's the X from exchange. And basically that's to try and um, recruit the sufferer, recruit that person to, to exchange and help others. So we want them to, if, if it's possible, to try and you know, use their uh, abilities now, their resources to try and help others feel more comfortable, to try and bring them something to maybe even count for the responder, how many people are injured and so on and so forth. And when they feel that sense of agency now by helping others, then of course, their brain says, well, there can't be anything wrong with me if I'm already helping other people. And so we get them back into that functioning mode. Um, And that's the Cortex Protocol, basically. What we do when we teach it, we teach the actual scripts, we teach the actual um, ways of approaching somebody, um, how you use your voice and so on and so forth, your body language, and um, how to actually see that they're getting back up. And functionable again, and that's basically what we're trying to do. We're not doing anything more than that. You would maybe hand somebody after that to, um, you know, physically check. The whole thing we've got to realise is that somebody like this is not physically injured. If they're in a life-saving, physically injured um, situation, well, then obviously that has to be dealt with first. But there's a lot of people that are involved in, um, you know, traumatic type incidents whether they're man-made or um uh, natural that are not physically injured they're just psychologically injured and they're the the most dangerous ones because sometimes they're quiet in the corner and you kind of miss them you think oh they must be fine because they're not you know bleeding or having broken bones but that can be a serious situation later on down the road if it's not dealt with
0: yes and you mentioned ptsd and flashbacks and you know How do you then help someone who is having or not realizing the emotional scars and impacts that those traumatic events might have on them, but it's starting to like this little niggling thing that gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time is what treatment have you thought about for those kind of people in the past?
1: Okay, so that's getting into a different um, time zone, if you like. The time zone that I'm talking about is an emergency acute time zone, so from seconds to hours, maybe three days, um, at a stretch, maybe even during the first month. From a month onwards, that's in a, what's called a chronic situation. That's where PTSD officially kicks in, although these are a lot of arbitrary uh, uh, dates, but basically, that's what the, 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 the big books tell us. So, um, from a month onwards, that's you're in PTSD. Now, um, that's not my area of uh, specialty, although I deal in my private clinic with uh, PTSD, but that is not dealt with in cognitive psychological first aid. But what we must remember is the majority of people in incidents like that. Will recover without going through a post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, they might have post-traumatic stress, but it doesn't necessarily come in to be um, disruptive to their life and become a disorder. So the majority of people will get through this um, sooner or later, and either revert back more or less to to what they were, or sometimes in some situations, because it's a life-threatening situation, um, they might actually uh, bounce back in a stronger way because they have a perspective change in their lifestyle. Um, And there will be a minority percentage that won't. And the best thing that we could possibly say is that they get, treatment or interventions as soon as they can uh, from a month onwards, although the way things are, that's not always possible. And and the way that the, depending on your insurance policy or your government policy, and I I can only talk about the United Kingdom, is that there's waiting lists for mental health um, that go on for years. Mm -hmm. So unless you can afford private um, uh, treatment, you're going to have a hard time with that.
0: Mm. it's um very interesting because i can see what you talk about is relatable to so many different instances like you know the traffic the traffic accidents which you know we come across quite regularly unfortunately you know we had big bushfires in australia last year we had big floods in australia the year before you know even though we're not necessarily talking about you know a terrorist attack um as part of our you know day-to-day living we are encountering you know traumatic and shock style events all of the time so first responders or anyone first on the scene could benefit from the protocol would you agree
1: yeah, I think there's a number of ways that they could benefit, and um, one of the big things in, in my, you know, my kind of mission in life with this is not just um, to help people after the fact. I, I'm a big believer in prevention, and a big believer in that we, you know, if we, if we can, if we can at least prevent, maybe we might not be able to prevent everything, but we can at least lower that kind of um, effect of these kind of events on our psyche, on our biology, on our neurology, then um, we might be able to have a better chance of getting through this in in a better way. And one of the ways that we can do that is, one, if you learn this protocol, what the data that's coming out seems to show is just by learning it, this can give you a sense of resistance and a sense of, well, if something ever does happen in the future as a professional or as an individual, then at least I will know what to do. I will know what to expect. Um, and I'll know that in the first 72 hours, if I'm feeling all these things, that that's normal and not pathological. And so that brings that kind of uh, distress level down from the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that's really important, in my opinion, is when we learn that uh, techniques and skills of emotional regulation in advance, and we learn how trauma and, and shock affects our psyche and body, and we learn skills and how to deal with that, Up, up aside from my protocol, then... Um, Again, we can have a situation that when we're going through life distresses, we will know what things will tend to happen in our bodies, our minds, our emotions, and even the physical sensations that we feel in our bodies, and we'll know that this is a natural reaction to whatever it is we're going through, or is a good possibility that it is, and we don't have to be so frightened of it.
0: Mm, That's true. Um, the one month thing is interesting isn't it because you know I know of people who have experienced trauma and you know days and weeks go by and they're still kind of confused about the situation but you know there is still that acute care that could be potentially provided to them which as you say they may not get for months and years afterwards and by that stage the damage is already done.
1: Well, yeah. And and one of the things that I find out when going back to the Manchester bombing is that in my head, we had to get this up and running as quickly as possible within days. And we did. Within seven days, we had basically a fully functioning uh, clinic going, giving, offering support and help to people that came through our system. Um, but what I did do is I went as quickly as possible to the National Health Service system to, to see if there's something that we could cooperate together on in order to um, reach a, a wider audience. And the, the answer I got back was the most surprising thing that I'd ever heard. And that was that they'd said to me, look, carry on, Dov, you're doing a great job. We're really uh, in shock. Basically, with how fast you've gone into action, they took three months to, 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 to have a, a hub that would deal with this. But it was deliberate because they said we our policy is not to do anything for the first six weeks at least, and they have a policy called watchful waiting, which is basically means Um, If you understand the the, the numbers, so after four weeks, you're talking about chronic PTSD. Then if somebody waits six weeks, what they're basically doing is, let's see how many people get chronically ill before we treat anyone. Um, And so, you know, that doesn't even make sense to me. So um, from a business uh, case, because I was also told, bring me a business case, And we'll, we'll, you know, see. But um, in Israel, they made the business case and they decided that watchful waiting was not um, a profitable um, way to go about things because, you know, at the end of the day, I suppose if somebody was treated after six weeks, you might at least have some sort of uh, case for that, but it doesn't happen. So what actually happens is, that that can go on to two or three years before somebody gets help. And then they've done basically many, many things for um, self-treatment. So they might be into drugs or alcohol, they might have lost a job by then, they might have got divorced and had all sorts of violence in the family because they're trying to deal with this trauma in their their own way. Um, And what they found in Israel was immediate intervention. doesn't have to be counselling. You can do all sorts of different interventions, some of the ones that I've mentioned, um, in order to help somebody get through those initial stages of after effects of traumatic situations, whether, again, they're car crashes or earthquakes or floods or whatever is. It doesn't always have to be terrorist attacks um, and prevent them from going down that slippery slope of self-medication. Yes,
0: it's kind of shocking with the the after Band-Aid that we try to apply to things in modern society, isn't it? It frightens me a lot. And now um, you're working on a new COVID aid project, Caring for the Carers, which is acute self-applied intervention for frontline staff. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that project?
1: Okay, so again, carrying on from what I just said, one of the really important things for me is prevention, um, if we can. But another passionate um area that's really important to me is the ones doing the caring you know the doctors the ambulance drivers the paramedics the fire people um frontline workers they're all getting um hailed as heroes i don't know about australia but certainly uh in the uk and around the world and you know clapping and everything is great and great but um who's actually looking after them um, from that mental health basically, to tell the truth, almost nobody. Um, and, and you know, there might be, of course, psychological um, services within these work uh, organizations that have traditionally been there, but there's always a massive stigma of anyone that's in those professions to approach the psychologist. I mean, that... You know, goes down, even if they're told it won't be on your record, it won't be on anything. But, you know, a lot of the time you have to even get your manager's permission to go and and see these people. And so that prevents them a lot of the time from using it. I know personally, when I was in the services and we had psychological um uh, departments that we could use and we were encouraged to use, but nobody would ever use them. <laughs> <I
0: think it's laughs> because be... I'm fine, I'm fine.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, a- absolutely. And so that brings a lot of burnout. And what we're seeing now is those frontline workers, those emergency staff, the nurses, doctors, even anyone that works in a hospital, um, care home workers, lots of death going on. Um, lots of, you know, all the, the whole PPE that's a very scary situation, worried about how they might infect their families and so on and so forth. Um, Masses amounts of burnout, compassion, fatigue, um, and what will eventually possibly turn into post traumatic stress disorders. And um, what I came up with is a protocol that will be, again, an acute protocol. Um, it's not a counseling treatment, it's not anything like that. It's about almost something that you can apply to yourself if you're in the middle of a situation and you get a five-minute break, which a lot of the times is all that these people are getting, to just kind of catch your breath. There'll be a few techniques, a few things that you can do, um, self-skills mm-hmm. to help bring that emotional regulation down so that you can go back into the field and back into the ward or wherever it is that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken evidence-based um, uh, treatments that are out there, taken simple skills out of them and put them together as a protocol. And what I'm trying to do now is disseminate this to try and teach this to as many um frontline workers carers whatever it is that you can think of that are helping other people to try and help themselves the, the you know caring for the carers basically
0: and are you still doing that all under the same charity that you set up
1: yeah so and- the, the the charity uh, you know we're, we're waiting the charity waits uh, on call if there's any major incidents but since you know thank God there's not been so basically we, we thought, how can we continue as a charity and offer an, a, that space of acute intervention where nobody's really bothering with? Um, and we you know, came up with this idea that we can, very relevant, teach um, these acute skills um, almost as an emergency intervention in the meantime. And so that's, that's our space, is that acute intervention from an emergency point of view.
0: What's the name of your charity, Doc?
1: So it's Heads Up,
0: heads as up. in Heads, mm-hmm. Heads
1: Up uh, CIO, which is a charitable incorporated organization. So, um, yeah.
0: And that's primarily based in the UK.
1: So that's, that's yeah, that's a UK based charity. Um, we're always available to try and help and teach other, especially very easy now because of Zoom and so on, that we can um, teach people in different countries. Uh, we have at one point um, you know, offered our assistance in different uh, countries around the world uh, if they needed it because this is not really being taught anywhere and so we want to eventually once we get much more established in the UK is to actually teach this in different countries around the world um, and set up different kind of heads- up, if you like uh, organizations in different places. Um, so yeah at the moment we're UK-based.
0: And have you done online training programs at the moment that people can join, or how have you been doing your trainings?
1: Okay, so this year brought us to do the training uh, online. It was an uh, interesting experiment, but it's worked very well. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, we work with actors and actresses, mm-hmm. um, and uh, when we when we do things in you know, kind of in the room and in the field. Uh, so we do a lot of training and we try to make it as realistic as possible. So we transfer that as best we can online now. And so we have an online program that does training. And we bring our actors on and we have uh, simulations as best we can online um, on, on learning this protocol. And uh, yes, we've had good reviews and uh, it's working very well.
0: That's great. So maybe you'll zoom off to Australia and do a training program for us at some point in the next few months. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what's really been your biggest aha moment in the last five years? Would you say for yourself?
1: My biggest aha moment really is how how generous people can be in um, really distressful situations. Um, you know, be, from the other side, being a service person, you know, you know, running around and trying to save the world in my first, uh, part of my career, you know, you don't really, uh, you kind of cut yourself off from the rest of, you know, mankind and you're just kind of super focused on what you're doing. Um, but coming from the other side now and just seeing regular people just helping each other and that outpouring of, um, love and affection that people have for each other, I, it really has um, touched my heart and has, you know, softened me up to the point of really having, um, you know, especially in this day and age where you know, trust uh, in in other human beings is is a rare thing now. It's it's not, you know, people, it's a lot of distrust, a lot of fake stuff out there, you know, and, and people are, that's, I think, generating a lot of fear in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Getting through that and seeing through that fog to that humanness that we all have when we can really get together and really help each other and have a common aim of meaning and purpose. Seeing that and being part of that really is for me um, brings my belief back in, in the human, human you know, um, community that we can, we can build together.
0: That's really important. I talk in my book about how um, I'm not inspired by celebrities or heroes. I'm inspired by everyday people doing, you know, normal stuff to help other people. And, you know, that's what I find inspiring and people that I would much rather emulate in my life. So I'm glad you kind of have come to a similar realization in that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For sure.
0: So um, what would be a top tip that you would give someone who's faced shock and trauma in their life?
1: So my go-to top tip always, is, I mean, first of all, if somebody's, uh, you know, gone through something that's, you know, life-threatening like that, then, um, you know, always ask for help. That's the first thing. You don't have to go through anything alone. There's plenty of help out there and really, you um, That's another thing that I've learned personally to do over the last 10 years or so is to to reach out and ask others for help. I was like the last person you would ever find asking anyone for any help. Uh, But, yeah, I've learned to do that. I've learned to open up and be vulnerable. So, um, you know, that's the first thing I would say is don't hold on to everything yourself. But from a tip point of view, the best thing that I always, and this is something that I use daily um, it's not. It's not an emergency technique. It's something we should learn to do, because it really builds up in in a in a real physical sense, not just in a kind of a psychological sense. It builds up our resilience from the point of view of the vagus nerve mm-hmm. um, coming out of our brain into different parts of our body. really strengthens it. Mm-hmm our social regulation, our heartbeat, our lungs, which is vagal breathing. And that's that's my go-to thing. Learn vagal breathing. Mm-hmm. I have a deep breath, hold it, and, and, and breathe out slowly. I do videos on that. I can send you one. Yeah. Um, and once we learn that and practice it on a daily basis, it will really have a, a strong effect on us, whether we're not yet. And most of us, we, we know that Um, from statistics that most of us in a lifetime will go through some sort of traumatic uh, event. So to have that um, practice is really important. And if, unfortunately, you're like me or anyone else that's gone through something already, then that certainly is something that uh, will help um, strengthen you from the inside.
0: It's true. I practice that as well. And I have two small children and often driving to and from school is like World War Three going in the back of the car behind me. And I'm just like going, ah! And when I get to the traffic lights, I start tapping here on my vagus nerve to get some
1: yeah.
0: and breathing and looking at the trees. <laughs> so
1: Absolutely. do you do Absolutely. the vagus tapping? <laughs> Yeah. So we, I, I use some. You know, we, I use this, which is um, also kind of a tapping situation. It's kind of based on EMDR and Peter Levine stuff, yeah. which is also connected to the vagal nerve. And also, um, yeah, we I use that daily.
0: Yeah. Yes, I have these trees along one road. It's the road's called Love Lane and when I drive down Love Lane, I'd spot the tree and I do my breathing, breathe, breathe, breathe. <laughs> and that's Absolutely. only a halfway journey to school.
1: <laughs> I can understand it. Um, but yeah, very, very effective very very effective
0: thanks so much for zooming off to australia to join me and it's been great to catch up with you i'll put the links to your book um, in the notes and congratulations i'm looking forward to reading it and i will be in touch with you again soon thank you so much
1: chrissy thank you very much appreciate it